Welcome to SeatWorks, a podcast produced by the curriculum and training team at the Center on Education and Training for Employment, a translational research center on Ohio State's campus. We work where research meets reality. I'm your host, Farah Allen, a program coordinator at the center. This series of podcasts focuses on workforce development and will feature discussions about preparing an organization for implementation or modification of a training program. To learn more about our work, you can visit our website, seat.osu.edu. Today we're going to talk about communities of practice with Tricia Hughes-Fitzgerald, Trisha is a program specialist at the center with over 20 years of experience who provides content expertise in the areas of curriculum and instruction with a focus on supporting educators in K through 12, career tech, and post-secondary. Trisha, thank you for joining me today. For many of our listeners who have not been involved in a community of practice before, can you start us off today by describing what it is? Hey, Farah, thanks for having me. A community of practice, or COP for short, refers to a group of people who share a common interest in something they do, and they want to learn how to do it better. They learn how to do it better through regular interaction with each other, during which they ask questions, share best practices, or share the ways in which they solved problems, and they provide each other with support. Okay, well, what's your role in a community of practice? My role in a COP has been to serve as the facilitator. Um, I guide participation. I keep the discussion moving. I set the stage for expectations for participant involvement. I signal when it's time for questions and answers. I facilitate sharing of best practices and identification of problems and solutions. I also served as the recorder and I captured participant questions, their best practices that they shared, problems that they identified, solutions they came up with. And this information provided me with a rough outline of the agenda for the next time we met. Well, what kind of support is needed to facilitate that program? Now that is a great question. There are a couple different types of support needed. As far as people support, I was really lucky to have a coworker observe every COP and take notes. So while I was facilitating, she was capturing everything that was said, including all the questions, the best practices, the problems, and the possible solutions. If there was a question that we couldn't answer during the community of practice, after the community of practice, we would track down the answer and communicate it, usually via email to our participants, as soon as possible. We used best practices shared and problems and solutions identified during the COP to constantly revise and refine the program. As far as resource support in a COP, you wanna make sure that participation is easy. So if participants need resources to use during the COP, we provided those resources. So all they had to do was show up and participate. And then when it comes to execution of the COP, you want it to feel really organic when it's going on, but that doesn't just happen. So for me as facilitator, 
I needed to spend some time planning and structuring. So there was a lot of planning that went into every COP session we had. First, every COP session started with the same content. Um, for me as the facilitator, it was a slide deck. And of course, me in front of the room talking that identified what a COP is, why COPs are used, what are the participation guidelines and what participation looks like. So for example, every session I told my participants that I expected them to share their challenges and successes through insightful discussion of ideas and their experiences. I reminded them every session to be respectful, to use appropriate language, to listen um, and respond to each other with open and constructive minds. Every session, I reminded them that the main goal of a COP was to learn how to do what they were doing better. So their contributions to problem solving were really important. Every session, I reminded them what participation looks like. For the most part, there are three zones of participation. At the center of the group is going to be a core group and they are intense participators. They talk a lot. Around that core group is an active group and they're gonna regularly participate, but they're not gonna dominate the discussion. And then around the active group is gonna be the peripheral group and they are mostly passive participants. And I think it's really important for the entire group to say, hey, there are gonna be people here that listen and they're not gonna say a whole lot. And that's okay. That's how some people participate. So just because somebody isn't verbally participating doesn't mean that they're not listening, that they're not taking it in, digesting, and going to act on it later. So every session, I would start with the slide deck and me in front of the group with the same script. This is why we're here today. This is what a COP is. This is why COPs are used. These are the participation guidelines that we've all agreed to, and this is what participation is gonna look like. It was repetitive, but I think it's important to set the stage for what the COP is going to look like. I think that helps participants remember, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm expected to do. Let's go. Communities of practice sounds like something that I would have really benefited from in the past with past jobs. And I think that Having that structure, the, the fact that you say you start off every meeting kind of the same, you lay out the expectations, that sets your foundation, regardless if the participants were just here and they're the same participants a month ago. You're still starting that in a very structured way, and it sounds like you're ending it in a structured way, and that is also kind of driving how you plan for the next one. Trisha does a great job of taking us behind the scenes of communities of practice by sharing the facilitator's role at a high level and laying out expectations of participants to ensure there are productive conversations and learning taking place. Next, I asked Trisha to help us understand what some of the tools and resources are that she has used as part of a COP in which she facilitated around an on-the-job training program. I've read some things about on-the-job training and rubrics and surveys. Are those tools that are always used or does it just depend on the program and what helps you decide which, if any, of those tools you use? The type of tools needed really depends on the group that's participating. 
The most recent COP I facilitated was for employees of a facilities maintenance department. And these employees were either senior techs in the department or they were the managers of the senior techs that were included. So really I facilitated two COPs, independent COPs. The group of senior technicians were involved in a program to train them how to serve as mentors to either employees new to the department or employees that needed more training to better perform their job. The group of senior technicians were just that though. They were senior techs. They weren't mentors, they weren't teachers. So before we introduced the community of practice, we had some training with them to train them in the essentials of what is needed to serve as a mentor. Once they started training and mentoring, the new to the department or the employees that needed more training, and we called those, that group mentees, once they started doing that, that's when we kicked off the community of practice. Um, so they could learn how to mentor better, share mentoring challenges and successes with each other, identify problems they were having and work together to find solutions. So the resources they needed to serve as mentors included on-the-job training manuals, rubrics, and an online reporting system. The on-the-job training manuals were used by the mentor and the mentee to practice the steps of the task the mentors and mentees perform in their role as technicians. So for example, we had an on-the-job training manual for installing an electrical outlet. And in that manual, we had the steps that the employee needed to do to correctly install an electrical outlet. The mentors and the mentees used these manuals as guides. For the mentees, the manual was a guide that outlined the steps they had to perform to complete the job. And for the mentor, the manual served as the exemplar by which they should teach their mentee allow their mentee to practice while they observe them, and then finally observe their mentee performing the task independently and successfully. The second resource we developed were rubrics for every on-the-job manual. And these rubrics identified the steps of the task. So what you needed to do to install an electrical outlet, they looked just like the on-the-job training manuals but they also included a description of the performance quality. So it was, it was a rating scale as to how well the mentee was performing the task. And after enough practice, once the mentee and the mentor felt confident in the mentee's ability to perform a task, the mentee would perform the steps and the mentor would use the rubric as a way to assess the mentee's performance. So as a way to say, yep, that step right on, knocked it out of the park, or eh, the performance of that step wasn't perfect. Here's some feedback, let's keep trying, let's try again. Because what you're looking for with a rubric is mastery. The last resource we developed was an online reporting system that the mentors used to track the mentee's progress, progression, and mastery for each task. And by developing this online reporting survey, the managers who were managing, the mentors who were mentoring, the mentees, it's a lot of M's, uh, the man managers were able to track mentee performance and to see um, mentee mastery of the tasks 
they needed to perform to do the job successfully. And that leads me to the second COP, which was for managers. So we have our group of mentors, our group of senior technicians, and we're asking them to be mentors and we set up a COP for them. We also have a group of managers and we're asking them to oversee this new program. And we thought, ugh, we should probably set up a COP for them too. So we did, yeah. So we set up a program, community practice for the managers, and it was the same idea. We they brought them together. They could share the challenges and successes with each other, identify problems they were seeing, work together to find solutions. We provided them with the same resources, the on-the-job training manuals, rubrics, and online reporting system. They didn't necessarily use it in the same way because they weren't mentoring a mentee, but we wanted to make sure that they knew the tools that their mentors and mentees were using. I know that might sound like a lot of stuff. And even though the development of some of these resources was lengthy, it was worth it. The resources developed helped the mentors learn how to do the mentor job, helped the mentees know what successful completion of a task was like, and helped the managers support their mentors and track mentee progress through the program. Communities of practice can exist in a variety of industries, fields, and spaces. As an example, next Trisha shares another experience where she utilized a communities of practice, this time not within an employment space, but rather in the field of adult education. You got it. Another COP I helped facilitate was for a group of adult education administrators in Ohio's adult education program known as Aspire. These administrators self-selected a category in which they wanted to get better, in which they wanted to improve their program's performance. For example, one of the categories was recruiting more students to the program. Another category was increasing student persistence in the program. While the topics they chose and, and the group that we're including in the COP was different, the purpose of the COP always remains the same. The people participating want to get better at something, and they do that by sharing challenges and successes with each other, by identifying problems they're having, and working together to find solutions. Now, this was a couple years ago, and the majority of this community of practice was done virtually through the use of an LMS. So in addition to curating and developing resources, to support the adult education administrators, we also had to invest time to build the COP in the LMS. Resources to support the COP in the LMS were recorded webinars, PowerPoints, assignments, and activities. For those of you listening, I think we can all agree there is great value in having communities of practice as a technique that could contribute to the learning we desire to take place in a training or professional development program. Next, what I wanted to know was how do we know when they are effective? How do you measure the success of the outcomes from a community of practice? So there are a couple of different ways you can judge to see if what you're doing is effective. Informally, I used body language of my skilled technicians and managers. I taught high school for 15 years and you become a real pro at looking at body language to measure if what you're doing is effective. 
my mentors and my managers were engaged. Participation was lively. They were on time. They were excited. They were enthusiastic. They were you know, awake. I mean, some of these COPs, you know, nine, nine o'clock in the morning and they're coming through the door, ready to go, getting there early. And they were engaged the entire time. You know, the kiss of death is when you're facilitating something and people are looking at their smartphones or having a side conversation or just sitting there silent, leaned back, arms crossed. That's when, that's when you got to re-engage, you got to think of something else to do to get it all back on track. So in working with my mentors and my managers, for the most part, they were on time, they were actively engaged, they were participating in communicate, you know, in discussion with each other, they were lively, they were enthusiastic, they were excited when somebody would provide a solution. They were, yeah, you know what? I'll try that. I'll take that back and I'll use that in my next, you know, engagement with my mentee. So I felt like what we were doing was pretty effective. But what's really cool about the center where I work is that, I mean, we are A to Z experts um, and we have an evaluation team. So this team performed a comprehensive evaluation of the program that included the facilities maintenance department. So the managers, mentors, and mentees. I am so stoked to report that the mentors endorsed the community of practice as extremely valuable to their role as mentors at 88%. So my feeling, my gut telling me, hey, I think this is going well, when it went through a formal evaluation, boom, it is going well. It did go well. They endorsed the community of practice at 88%. And that felt good. I think you kind of answered my next question. I was thinking, how did different levels of participation and perspectives impact the success of a program? And I think that you just kind of described it. You're going to have those varying levels of participation and everyone has a different perspective that they bring, right? Yeah. But do you find that you've ever had to set boundaries if there's too much honesty or too much of a varying participation? So, you know, I'm a big believer in the more touches on the ball, the better you get at the sport. And the same holds true with effectively facilitating a community of practice and effectively participating in a community of practice. So I started every community of practice session with the same content, the same PowerPoint slide deck and the same script. And I would review what is a COP, why we're using a community of practice, what are the participation guidelines and what does participation look like? And I think that helped establish the boundaries and helped re-establish the boundaries every time we got together. As a facilitator, it's my job to keep the COP moving in the right direction. And as long as it is, my role is pretty minimal. If the discussion goes off the rails, if participants start to discuss issues and ideas outside of the box, if discussion becomes heated, and there were a couple of times that it did, if side conversations start up, that's when, that's when I or the facilitator needs to intervene. And, you know, usually it was a pretty minimal intervention. It was, you know, taking a minute or two to say, hey, we're outside the boundaries of the COP expectations or goals. And then you, you kind of state exactly what they're doing that's off track and then redirect. Redirection might mean it's time for a 10 minute break or redirection might just be simply reintroducing the prompt that you had before things went off the rails 
and then trying again. The pandemic has obviously impacted everyone in almost every aspect of our lives. So I was curious to hear from Trisha how she has seen communities of practice be impacted and if it's still possible to have effective COPs during this time. I can imagine all of this in a setting, in a room or an auditorium, and I can imagine how this might be laid out with a group of people in person. But how has the community of practice, the program itself, been affected by the pandemic? How's it changed how it's facilitated? How can organizations be creative right now during the pandemic when maybe it's not so easy or they're not sure how to conduct a community of practice? Oh my gosh, absolutely. You can still have COPs. You can have a COP anytime you want. COPs can be done face-to-face. They can be done virtually. You can do a hybrid of the two. I think the overnight shift from being face-to-face to to being virtual in our workspaces was initially a steep learning curve for everyone. I know it was for me, but now that I've been virtual for a year, I can definitely see myself effectively facilitating a virtual community of practice. And in fact, a virtual community of practice could, you know, increase attendance and participation since there's no travel time involved. Participants don't have to leave their office and spend time traveling to the location of the community of practice. So participants can participate from the comfort of their own wherever they are, makes it easier. And in order to get really good participation, you wanna make it as easy as possible to participate. So I think you can do a face-to-face COP. I think you can do a virtual COP. I think you can do a hybrid COP and have them all be effective. Lastly, I was curious to hear Trisha's thoughts on how important she thinks the integration of a community's of practice within a training program was. Here's what she had to say. Oh yeah, for sure. When starting something new, like training technicians to serve as mentors or asking adult education program administrators to improve an aspect of their adult education program, you wanna make sure that you have a process in place where the people who are actually doing the work are given an arena in which they can share challenges and successes with each other, identify problems they're having and work together to find solutions You don't just say to a technician, hey, I need you to train, you know, that guy's new and I need you to train him to do all the stuff that you do. So, okay, thanks, bye, and and never check in again. How awful would that have been with our mentors if we just would have said, okay, here's an on-the-job training manual, here's a rubric, here's a reporting system, bye-bye, and then a year later, you know, find out that the paper rubrics, once they're folded, serve as a great doorstop. That would have been awful. Just as a COP helps people doing the same job do it better, it also provides feedback to the organization that is asking people to do their job better on how it's going. Wow. Well, I learned a lot more today. I hope all of our listeners did too. Is there anything else that you would like us to know today or that you'd like to close with? Trisha? Well, you know, I'm not going to call it a day without one more plug for communities of practice. They're just a really great way to get workers to do their job better. And it's cool because whoever's participating in the community of practice, 
They come together, they identify challenges, they help problem solve, they share best practices. So in the end, the participants end up doing what they're doing, but doing it better. Who doesn't love that? I think COPs are one of the best ways to introduce something new to a group of people and support those people as they work to get better. But the benefits aren't just for the participants, like I've already said. Participation in a community of practice provides valuable information to the organization that's doing the asking. So communities of practice are beneficial to the participants because they learn how to do their job better and beneficial to the people doing the asking because they learn what they need to do, they revise, they reinvent, they learn what they need to do to support the participants. And if that is not a great model for success within any kind of a work environment, you know, I just don't know what is. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will share with your colleagues and friends. If you'd like more information on this topic, you can contact us at go.osu.edu forward slash Ohio State for work. See our description for details. Be well and bye for now.